Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is week seven of the Walk Through the Bible series, and this week we're going to be covering what's in the Daily Bible, pages 191 to 218, or the Daily Bible dates of February the 12th through the 18th. We're going to be talking this week about God's love for His people. We have a very, very important segment this week. So I'm so glad that you've chosen to join me and listen in. We're going to deal with two major aspects of God's love for his people. And uh, so first, let's do a brief review where we are in our reading. So our wilderness wanderings um, are coming to an end now. Um, we The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the 40 years of wandering. So we kind of jump now to where the time is coming to an end. And so God is beginning to prepare his people to enter the land. He's leading them into that area east of the Jordan and preparing them to enter. And um, he's also preparing Moses to say goodbye to the people because Moses will not be entering the Holy Land with them. Now, um, I just want to remind you that next week, we're going to begin reading the portions of the scriptures from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that deal with the various laws that God gave the people of Israel. By saving them up and dealing with them all at one time, we get to deal with them sort of by subject and and, uh, um, taking out any repetition And it's going to be so much easier to follow and to understand. So we have, uh, we're looking forward to studying more about the law. But in the meantime, we're going to continue our story um, up until they're ready to enter the land. So now uh, last week we had the story of how that uh, they have defeated the Amorites, and this is east of the Jordan River, so they're not yet inside the land. And then the king of Moab was very worried about them, and so he hired the prophet Balaam to curse the people of Israel, so then the king of Moab would be able to defeat them. And of course, that didn't work at all. Balaam instead pronounced beautiful uh, prophecies and blessings over the people of Israel as directed by the God of Israel. So now this week we pick up our story where now it's very, very interesting that Balaam, because he's understood that these people can't be defeated in the the normal way. They are an unusual people. They are a people alone. They're a people apart from the peoples around them, and their God is with them. So he saw it. And he devised a way to defeat them. And that was by luring them into the pagan idolatrous worship of the people of Moab and of Midian. And so we have here in the story that first the Israelite men are seduced by the women of Moab. 
And this means that they are seduced into not just a sexual relationship, but actually idolatrous uh, sex to the God of fertility. And this is, of course, very, very displeasing to the Lord. And so all of the men that participated in this were to be killed. Um, and so maybe this is what gave Balaam the, um, the idea, because then an Israelite man brings into the camp a Midianite woman, and it causes such an uproar. And later we find out, a few chapters later, we find out that the plan was devised by Balaam. And the plan was to uh, destroy the people by bringing them into what, when you're reading this in English, it's a little hard to understand uh, some of the words here, but it did imply, and the reaction to it implied that there was some kind of ritual prostitution here that was being introduced uh, into the camp. And so uh, the Midianites have to be destroyed. And um, the only survivors were um, allowed were virgin women, not because the Israelite men wanted the virgin women for their wives and for sex. What it meant was that the virgin women had not participated in the temple idolatry, which included some kind of ritual uh, intercourse as a part of the worship of these pagan gods. And so because they had never, uh, they were probably young and hadn't entered into that. And so they were kept alive. Um, no, nowhere does it say they were brought to be wives or anything more than likely they were made um, slaves and servants, but they were allowed to live. And so this introduces a very, very serious topic that we have to take a few minutes to discuss, and that is that how can the loving God of the New Testament direct killing, and not just killing, but actually the whole destruction of a group of people here in the Old Testament? And this is a very, very serious conversation that we must have because there are in right now today in the United States, there are evangelical pastors telling their people that they should disregard the Old Testament because of passages like this, that the Old Testament is depicting a God that is different than the God of the New Testament, and so they should not be reading it, that it is not the Bible. It is not God's word. It is not true. And this is not some little fringe group. Just this week, I read a headline of a large church in the Bible Belt of America that had come out and said, the Bible is not the word of God, and it's for this very reason. So this is why it's so important that we understand how to read the Old Testament and how to teach the Old Testament and to understand what was happening here? And while it may make us uncomfortable, um, there is an explanation. This is a very, very uh, hot topic. 
First of all, it was God himself who had just told Moses in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And he had given them the law that they were not to murder. We're going to cover the law next week. But he had told them this. So the same God that says, thou shalt not murder, is now telling them to wipe out whole people groups. Um, how do we fit all this together? What does this mean? Well, you know, in, we cannot read these scriptures within the context of 21st century American society and culture because we have evolved a lot over 3,500 years. Now, we might think that we've evolved a whole lot farther than we actually have. Let me tell you, when I watch some movies on Netflix um, or I read about things going on in the United States, I can tell you we haven't evolved that far. But for 3,500 years, our society and Western society has built an ethos that says thou shalt not murder. Because why? Because it's the Ten Commandments. But our society uh, is geared to think it's, it's not right to murder. Now we see murder all around us. And we see more and more societies that are, are not built upon that ethos. And, um, and they're full of murder. But in the United States and in the West, we've been built upon the Ten Commandments, which is thou shalt not murder. So how do we reconcile this? Well, in our story, um, first of all, God did not tell them to wipe out the Edomites or the Ammonites. They, let, they didn't bother either one of those two groups. But it was when the king of the Amorites came out to fight them that then they defeated the Amorites. And now here we have this uh, defeat of the Midianites. So it's not like God was just telling them, go kill everybody. It was kind of selective. So who was he selecting? What's behind this? First of all, I want you to know that in these stories, and this is just the first, this is just the beginning. Once we get into uh, the land of Canaan, there's more of this. They're, they're told in this week's reading, actually, they were told in uh, Deuteronomy that when they enter the land, that they were to wipe out uh, the peoples. So why is this? Well, number one, God is teaching them that there is a consequence to sin. We know that uh, later on in the scriptures, it says that the wages of sin is death. And um, we approach these and we're thinking all these innocent women and children and men. And that's the wrong assumption is to assume that they were innocent um, because actually they were uh, pagans that um, sacrificed human beings that were involved in all of this temple prostitution to the fertility gods. And they were very rampantly sick uh, societies based on their pagan beliefs and their pagan religion. And um, so very clearly here, the consequences of sin is death. Now we think that that death, you know, is when we die to go to heaven, but here God is showing his people there are consequences to this 
rejection of me as God and going after these pagan gods, and this is what it's going to cost you. So it was a lesson for his people going in. But also, I want to back up because back in Genesis 15, when God was making the covenant with Abraham, he told him something so interesting. So in Genesis 15, God has just cut the covenant with Abraham, where they laid the animals out in two areas and and uh, it says that the fire came down through there. And so God cut this covenant with Abraham where he made these certain promises. And then the Lord tells Abraham, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. So they weren't going to possess the land. They weren't going to take it over. They lived in the land as foreigners. And it says, and there'll be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. And then he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So here he's obviously referring to Egypt and their slavery in Egypt and that he would judge the nation that enslaved them and they would come out with great possessions. And he says, as for you, you'll go to be with your fathers in peace and you'll be buried at a good old age and they will come back in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is God saying? That the iniquity, the sin of the local peoples there in Canaan had not been brought to fruition yet. It wasn't time for judgment. And he said, for 400 years, your people, your offspring are not going to possess the land. But then there's going to come a time where I'm going to bring them out. And uh, But not now, because the sin of the Amorites has not been complete. So God actually was very merciful to the pagan Amorites, which lived in Canaan, for 400 years. He gave them the opportunity, you could say, to get it right. But finally, the time was up. The sin had filled the land, and it was time to judge, and the wages of sin is death. Now, God's mercy did spare people along the way, and especially if they repented. So we have the story we're going to hear in a few weeks of Rahab in Jericho. She asked to be a part of of Israel. She asked to help them and to be spared. And God spared her. So he had mercy. But when a king is going to bring his army out to destroy the Israelites, there's no mercy. God was also protecting his people from destruction in two ways. First, the destruction of idolatry. God knew that if his people fell to idolatry, it was all over. It was all over for them. They would no longer be the people of the God of Israel. They would be uh, in idolatry following other gods. They would be kicked out of the land, and it would be all over for them. So he was sparing them from that destruction. And he says this in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, 
that he says, you know, that they were to be wiped out, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So he was trying to protect his people from falling into sin and losing their identity. Once they began intermarrying with the pagans and living the pagan lifestyle, they would no longer be Israelites. They would lose their identity. They would be swallowed up in these other people groups. And that's the second thing God was saving them from, was another form of destruction. So idolatry would destroy them as a people, but also these other peoples would come after them and destroy them militarily because in that world, in that culture, at that time, it was kill or be killed. And so God knew the intent of these other kings that they were going to come and wipe out the Israelites. So by telling the Israelites who to go in and wipe out, he was protecting them. We don't like the sound of it. We don't like the sound of war, of people being killed. We hate it, and I'm sure God hated it. But our problem is when we assume that these people were all just innocent people, and we don't understand how God gave them time, right, 400 years, uh, to get it together, and, um, and that he did show mercy to anyone that was looking for mercy. And um, so it's just important that we're able to grapple with this and not to interpret the Bible and interpret these stories in the Old Testament and in the conquest of the land in our 21st century Christian little mindset and uh, realize it was a completely different time, a completely different culture, society, religious context, everything. And lastly, God did this because he was paying the price. He knew this was a terrible price to pay, but he had to pay the price to keep his people from destruction and to establish them as a nation so that 1,500 years later, Messiah could be born and die on the cross for the sins of the world. He knew what was necessary. And he was willing to pay the price to establish this people and what he was going to do through them. The, the world rested on the shoulders of the survival and the establishment of the Israelite nation. And this was the, pi the price that had to be paid. Now, let's move on to the other part of the story. Our story moves on. Uh, we read this week that Joshua was chosen to succeed Moses. We knew Moses could not enter the Holy Land. And so Joshua is chosen to be a successor because it said the spirit of leadership was upon Joshua. And that's why he was chosen. And so Moses lays his hand on Joshua and, um, and confers upon him the leadership. And then we have the story of how that two and a half tribes, the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh, asked Moses for permission to settle on the east side of the Jordan River in the area where they were encamped because it was great 
land for pasturing livestock, and that's what they owned a lot of. And at first, Moses is concerned because he thinks maybe it's a show of a lack of courage and a lack of faith in going into the promised land. But then they assure him, no, 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 we're going to go in with the other tribes and we're going to help them take their land and then we'll come back. But we want to leave our women and our children here. We want to build uh, walled cities and have our livestock here. This is where we want to come back to. So Moses felt that their heart was in the right place. And he says, okay. And then we enter Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is such a beautiful book. I want to take a few minutes to talk about what happens here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is where Moses knows that his time is coming to an end. And so he reviews the story of what God has done with his people and what he's taught them. And he reviews the laws that God has given his people. But Deuteronomy is not just a repetition of the story. And this is why I want you to read it and really soak it in. It's almost like a renewal of the contract with the people. Now, keep in mind that the people that saw the fire and the smoke on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments and began receiving the law from Moses, a lot of them have died by now. This is a, a new generation of Israelites. And so, in a way, this is a renewal of the contract. It's a renewal of the marriage vows. And the way Moses words it here in Deuteronomy is so beautiful, and it's so full of God's love for his people and the chosenness of this people and the very high calling that is upon this people. And I was really moved and touched as I studied it this week. Now, uh, the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew is called Devarim because Devarim means words and it opens with these are the words of Moses. So the book is called Words, uh, that these are the words of Moses. And you know, for everything, I keep telling you what the skeptics say, not because I believe them, but because I think it's important that we know what they say. And I do attempt to give you some answers or some other thoughts. So the skeptics like to say that Moses didn't really write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And, um, and they give you different reasons why they think there may be different writing styles or there's repetition or there's this or there that. But what I want to just say is that uh, Jesus did think that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So if it's good enough for Jesus, believe me, it's good enough for me because you know, Jesus lived a lot closer to the time of Moses. And, um, and so secondly is that Jesus quoted, now which book, which book in the Old Testament do you think Jesus quoted the most? Well, it was Deuteronomy. That is the book that the New Testament altogether quotes more than any other book. And it's what Jesus quoted more than any other book. I want to call your attention to uh, Deuteronomy chapters 4 through 8, actually. There's just some absolutely gorgeous scriptures 
in here. But I want to show you in uh, chapter four, he begins to hammer away at them against idolatry. And he mentions several different things like making images, which is magic. And he mentions the astral religions of, you know, the, the moon and the sun and the stars. And, and it's like, don't project on them things. Um, he's the God that created all of that. And so he's warning them against these other religious beliefs that are all around them, and particularly in the land of Canaan. He also gives them in here the principle of exile from the land that I want to draw your attention to in chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. He lets them know that if they turn against him and they go after other gods, they will be exiled from the land and they will be taken into every other country um, on earth. And so um, that's an important principle that we'll see how that played itself out in the history of the Jewish people as we proceed on through our biblical story. Um, he also mentions here in a beautiful scripture in chapter 4, verse 26, where he he swears by the, the heaven and the earth are the witnesses uh, to his covenant with his people. And what that means is that heaven and earth are more, they're longer lasting than the human life. So it, it's, it's an eternal, it's an everlasting covenant. And in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, and again, 32 through 40, he talks about that they are a chosen nation. And he says, you were shown all these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and beside him there is no other. So this wilderness wandering, these, these very stark lessons that God gave them in real life, he didn't just tell them, you know, well, if you need healing, come to me, and I, I'm the God that healeth all your diseases. He gave them very visible ways of, of knowing that and of seeing that and, and, and of providing them with water and with food and, and stories where we saw his judgment upon his own people. If they rebelled against him and his leadership, they were judged and killed. These are very stark lessons for them to learn, but it was so important that they learn these lessons before they went into the land. And so here it's saying, you were shown all these things so that you would understand who the Lord God is and that beside him there is no other. And he told them to keep his decrees and his commandments, which I give you today so that it will go well for you in the land. This is not a God that's saying, keep all my commandments because otherwise I'm going to beat you up or otherwise I'm going to wipe you out. Otherwise I'm going to destroy you. No, he says, keep my laws and my commandments so that it'll go well for you in the land. And uh, in chapter eight of Deuteronomy, it says that the wilderness teachings were to humble and to test them so that in the end, it might go well with them. So these humbling testings, I don't know if you ever gone through a period where you just felt like you were tested and it was test after test and some of it was humbling. and and uh, But when you come through it all, 
It's all so that God's will will be done in your life, that you will be made a stronger person and a, a better person, that your relationship with him will be stronger, that, that things will go well for you. But God is willing to, you know, take the chance and the risk of testings and of hardship for you to learn those lessons. In uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, we have a very, very famous verse. It's called, the Daily Bible called it the premier commandment. In all of Judaism, it's the highest command. It's called the Shema because the word Shema means hear, and it begins with hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he do? But he referred back to this, to the Shema. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know, I have read some Christian leaders that try to say that what Jesus taught was just so different, so new, so earth-shattering different, that we don't need the Old Testament because all we need is to read Jesus. But right here, it shows you everything Jesus taught came from the scriptural foundation he had, which was in the Old Testament. And so when he when he says, when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't come up with something new. He went back to Deuteronomy 6 and he quotes from the Shema. And you know, when Jesus was tempted by the devil out in the wilderness, all three times he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And we read those scriptures this week that Jesus quoted when uh, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and tried to tempt him with that, he, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. And uh, when the devil told him, throw yourself down and, uh, you know, the Lord will save you. And he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's from Deuteronomy 6.16. And then when he tells him, command these stones to be made into bread, and they will. And Jesus quotes to him, uh, chapter 8, verse 3, that says, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus used Deuteronomy. And this is what bothers me when a, a Christian leader is telling people not to read the Old Testament they're robbing them of the very spiritual foundation of everything that Jesus did and taught. And these are very powerful scriptures that Jesus used in spiritual warfare against the powers of evil. And so we can too. Um, another interesting verse uh, in our reading this week came out of chapter 10, and it referred to the 
circumcision of their hearts. And you know, the Apostle Paul referred to that in Romans 2 and the importance of our hearts being circumcised. And I'll tell you, for the longest time, I didn't realize that he was quoting Deuteronomy. I thought it was a New Testament concept about spiritual circumcision. Um, and, and yet here it was, all along, God was after hearts and spirits. So that leaves us with our final verse for today from chapter 11, verse 26, where um, Moses tells the people, he said, I've set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord, and the curse, if you disobey. This is the basic lesson of all of life, and we found it this week in our reading, and we find it here in Deuteronomy, that we have been given a free will. God did not produce us or create us as robots. He doesn't dictate to us what to do. God wants a people that love him out of their hearts, not because they have to. And so here in Deuteronomy, God is laying out all of this life before his people, and he's saying, it's up to you. Do you want to live in blessing or do you want to live in sin and under a curse? It's your choice. And you and I have the same choice today. And I don't know about you, but I choose the Lord. I choose to do all that I can to live according to his statutes and to all of the principles that he's laid out in the Bible because I want his blessings in my life and I want to walk in blessing. And so I choose it. And that's what God wants from all of us. What do you choose? And if you choose to also walk in blessing and in fellowship with the Lord, then raise your hand today and say, Lord, I choose. I choose blessing. I choose you. And that is the relationship that God has proposed to his people in the wilderness it was a marriage proposal, and here in Deuteronomy, he renews it with a new generation of Israelites before they go in to take the land, and they say, we will do all that the Lord has said. So that ends our reading for this week. Now, next week, we're going to be in the law. Yes, the fun law that God gave his people. We're going to learn so many new things. So I can't wait to see you back here then. And until then, God bless.